you know, for years, I struggled with my relationships with clients. It's a lot better now. I mean, it, it's gotten a lot better in the last, say, 10 years. And part of that is just the age gap disappeared. You know, I started doing this when I was 27 years old, and the clients were so much older. And it was hard to relate to them. And I never really thought about, you know, I never done any therapy or anything like that. So I never thought about that what was really going on was all the baggage I had in my relationship with my father translated into the same stuff with clients because they were kind of authority figures and father figures. And I had a hard time dealing with that. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Hey, also the hottest driver in golf right now. I was lucky enough to have a fitting for the new TSR driver last week and boom, picked up seven miles an hour ball speed, 10 yards of carry, just that fast. The numbers don't lie, nor do all the players on tour who are now gaming a TSR. So find your faster and schedule your fitting today. So my name's Tom Coyne, and I'm the senior editor at the Golfer's Journal. I welcome any new listeners to the podcast, and I think maybe we have a few new listeners today because we've got a conversation here that is, well, frankly, it's kind of a big deal. All you golf course architecture and Tom Doak enthusiasts who are tuning in, uh, well, I have good and bad news for you. The good news is that, yes, we've got a great conversation with Tom Doak queued up for you. The bad news is that we don't talk about golf courses or golf course architecture hardly at all. So the night before we were set to record with Tom, and we cannot thank him enough for joining the podcast. He's exceptionally busy right now, and finding a time to record for both of us, it wasn't the easiest bit of scheduling we've ever done, but we did settle on a time, and then Tom reached out, and he surprised me a bit. I assumed we'd be talking GCA and trends in design and review the wonderful yardage book feature that he wrote in Golfer's Journal 20 about Terry Eady, but Tom had a different idea. He said that a long talk with Mike Kaiser and an eight-hour drive home from Sand Valley, where he's working on the new Lido and Sedge Valley, among other projects, he said it had all left him in an introspective mood and that, quote, I'd love to address my media reputation as an asshole for what it really is. I told him that sounded like a great topic for discussion, and I hope that after listening, you'll all agree that it was. Now, this was my first time ever speaking with Tom. We'd exchanged a fair number of emails, some relating to a matter that you'll hear about shortly. And I was anxious about bringing up some topics that I wanted to discuss, given the reputation that Tom cited in his email. But then we started talking and from his being labeled as difficult to work with to his awkward relationship with former protege, Gil Hans, to his controversial rating of the St. Andrew's Castle course, Tom was up for talking about all of it, which I suppose could make one question whether Tom Doak is actually difficult to work with or not, because as an interviewer, I don't think I've ever spoken to a guest who was so forthcoming. And for that, we are very appreciative of Tom for his time, and for his honesty, and for trusting the Golfer's Journal to present the upcoming topics properly, some of which are not all that easy to talk about. But we're going to talk about them anyway, right after I thank all of you for listening and subscribing. Remember, we are a member-supported with minimal advertising, so we can bring you that commercially quiet experience. And as a member, some of the stuff you get access to, besides a full slate of play days at top courses and 
goodies from companies like Lynx and Kings and Lynx Soul and Oakley. How about the member fitting day we're about to host at the Titleist Performance Institute in California for 24 lucky Broken Tea Society members? Sad to say, entries have just closed for that, but I'm sure we're going to do it again. Winners are going to tour the factory. They're going to get fit on what's probably the Swedish driving range in golf and get fit for the TSR Woods before they're generally uh, before they're available to the public. So pretty extraordinary. If you missed getting in on that, of course, we still have our year-long referral game going on. So refer somebody, refer a friend, refer someone you don't even like using that referral code in your TGJ locker. And if they sign up, you get an entry into the year-long fitting contest. And that's a head-to-toe fitting from Titleist Footjoy and Scotty Cameron. All the goodies in your size and specs. We could do an entire podcast about the benefits of membership for the at the Golfer's Journal. But we have more to get to today, so I'll leave it there. But please do subscribe and resubscribe if it's time to do so. I saying I, I used to be a member of the Golfer's Journal. Well, that doesn't get you any of the great stuff we just talked about. And it isn't going to get you Golfer's Journal 21, which is dropping now. And I can't stop staring at it. It is a thing of beauty. Such a great issue. Thanks to the brands from the book who helped make it so great. And they are Titleist, Link Soul, Footjoy, Oakley, Links and Kings, Scotty Cameron, and Charles Schwab. And now, let's get down to what we're here for. Tom Doak renowned golf course architect, as you've probably never heard him before, reflecting on his childhood, his relationship with friends and peers, and why he's okay talking about all of it. Because as Tom would tell you, what any of us think about him, well, it's none of his damn business. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the Golfer's Journal podcast today. We are thrilled to have you. We're Thrilled to have you in the book as well. Um, you did a great piece in Golfer's Journal 20, one of our yardage books, the 17th at Terry Eady. And I know people haven't been enjoying that. And initially, the idea was to get together, talk about that, you know, and talk about golf course ar- architecture and all those those fun things. But I got this wonderful email from you last night about some things that you might want to talk that that discussing what you might want to talk about today, telling me that you were in a, an introspective mood. Tell us why you're in an introspective mood and maybe what that, uh, where that might lead us. Well, I mean, even that piece at, about the hole at Terraiti, one of the reasons I enjoyed writing it was that, you know, a big part of it wasn't just about, oh, my genius designing the golf hole, but actually like the interaction with the client, Rick Kane, because, um, you know, Rick and I had gotten along great for that whole job. And then you know, and we always made sure to overlap a little bit when I was down there. So I could just, you know, we build like three or four holes at a time. And so you're always checking in with the client, like, how's it going? What do you like? What do you not like? And he was just super excited the whole way through. And then that the last time I was down there, we, our schedules didn't line up. And I, you know, I got back to the site and we're like working on the last three holes. And I, you know, I phoned him to check in with him and said, said, did you like, you know, how'd you like everything? And he, you know, he, he said he loved the 15th hole that turned out way better than he thought, but honestly, he was kind of disappointed in 17 and, you know, my heart sank cause I'm standing on the 17th hole and there's grass just about just coming up. It's uh-huh. like, uh-huh. You know, it was planted 10 days ago. I'm like, Oh no, you know, cause it's, that's like a really hard time to fix something, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he said, 
he said, I just thought it was going to be tougher. You know, like there was going to be a real pucker factor when you got on that tee. It was going to be scary. And I was like, okay, I got to think about that for a couple of days. You know, let me get back to you. And I didn't have to think about whether he was right for very long because, you know, because I was worried that the golf hole was going to be too hard. It's kind of a short par three and it's got a crosswind and, you know, it's a beautiful hole. But, uh, you know, I was worried most people were going to have a hard time holding the green and then be playing back and forth out of sand all day. And, you know, now here's the client telling me, I'm not worried about that. You know, that's okay. You know, you've solved that for most of the golf course. I want this hole to be harder. So hmm. I'm like, fine. But, you know, now I got to break it to my construction crew. Yeah, we're going to, this hole we just finished, we're going to tear it up and, and redo it somehow in the next five days before I get out of here. And, you know, that was uh, a little challenging. But, you know, for years, I struggled with my relationships with clients. It's a lot better now. I mean, it, it's gotten a lot better in the last, say, 10 years. And part of that is just the age gap disappeared. You know, I started doing this when I was 27 years old and the clients were so much older and it was hard to relate to them. And I never really thought about, you know, I never done any therapy or anything like that. So I never thought about that. What was really going on was, you know, I was I was all the baggage I had in my relationship with my father translated into the same stuff with clients. Because they were kind of authority figures and father figures. And I had a hard time dealing with that. And especially since I'd, you know, I'd worked for Pete Dye and Pete was like, well, you've got to stand up for what you believe. And if, you know, you have to be ready to walk away from the project if they won't let you do what you think is the right thing to do. So, you know, I was like loaded up on that. Yeah. <laughs> and that just made it that much harder to deal with the just normal disagreements about little things. So, you know, you know, you could you could be in complete alignment about 98 percent of what was going on and still wind up thinking the other guy was an asshole over the last two percent and just be very emotional about it. And, you know, some of that's gone away now, but but also I kind of like had to figure it out, you know, when I had problems in my second marriage, my wife wouldn't let me fall back on, well, that's just the way I am. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, well, you know, you should really think about that a little more than that. And, and she had been going to group therapy for uh, adult children of alcoholics and said, mm -hmm. I think you should go too. And I did. And it was enlightening and frightening and, you know, how easily I identified with that. Cause I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't think my parents were alcoholics at all. In fact, I probably, I still, you know, well, you're always resistant to say that they are, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a thing that's passed down through the generations. So, you know, my parents were much older than me. I was, they were 42 when I was born and I'm the youngest of two or the oldest of two, strangely enough. My mom couldn't, couldn't have kids until she was 40. And then you know, they got an operation to fix her problem. And, and I was a miracle baby when she was 42. Wow. But my parents just doted on me and my brother. And, you know, I always thought we had a pretty good relationship. And I never knew most of my grandparents. Two of them were dead before I was born. Uh, a third died, like my dad's mom died the week after I was born. 
So I never really had the perspective on the family history. You know, my mm-hmm. my parents were real close to their brothers and sisters. They all they both grew up on family farms in the Midwest in the Depression. Um, and so I always heard about the good times of that. And it wasn't until years later that I thought to myself, you know, my mom just never, ever said anything about her dad. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when I got into like ACA therapy, it was like, you know, I started thinking about my mom's family and it was like, you know, I could remember her and I, my, her mother was the only one that I did get to know. She, she was around till I was like 12 or 13, but you know, I, I remember her two sisters too. And if I had one word to describe them all today, it would be fearful. So that's mm-hmm. like a giant red flag. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so, so what happens with, you know, so finally I asked my dad about it, like several years after my mom had passed away. And he was like, yeah, my dad was an alcoholic, but your mom's dad was a mean alcoholic. Mm. And that was hard to find out at that point in my life, but it, but it did help understand some things, but still, I never really thought that that would give me problems down the road, but but that all affected my parents and that all affected how my parents treated me. And, you know, so you just grow up with being afraid to express emotions. And, you know, if you're if you're in a violent alcoholic family, you're afraid to express emotions because somebody might call off on you that you did. Um, with my family, it wasn't that. It just made everybody uncomfortable. So you just avoid those kind of things. You know, that's the second generation of it. Um, but it just keeps going on until you finally sit down and think about it enough for yourself that, um, that you can try to break the cycle. And usually by that time, it's too late to, you know, you've already done it to your kids. So you you go apologize to them and, and try to at least express upon them. Don't do it to your kids too. Right. Tom, I'm so glad we're talking about this. We actually, we have a lot in common, um, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic myself in recovery, uh, 10 years the other day. So that's, that was quite a, uh, thank you. It was a quite a lovely, lovely and important milestone, but I know exact, exactly what you're talking about. Generationally, my dad grew up on a, uh, a farm in, uh, during the depression as well. So there's just, I'm hearing a lot of, in your story that that's resonating with me and, and that journey I didn't go to ACA. Uh, I went, you know, into recovery and sort of followed that path on my own. But obviously, on that path of discovery, you learn a lot about why you are the way you are, why you think the way you think, why you make the choices that you make. And you, in becoming aware of that, have a chance to do something differently, you know, as you learn about yourself. My story is a little different in that my mom and I had to call her before this interview so that I could clear with her. I was like, Mom, can I say that I'm an adult child of an alcoholic? Of course you can. I don't think anyone knows my mother that doesn't know that she has, you know, uh, she got so, sober when I was two years old. So she's 45 years uh, in recovery and has helped a, a lot of people. And it's just totally central to her life. So she got sober, you know, when I was very young. So I grew up around recovery. So my adult child is a little different. So when I look back on it, I was like, wow, I grew up around 
people, you know, in recovery and doing recovery things and going to recovery picnics. Now, my brothers and sisters are much older than me and they 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 it was different for them. Um, So, yeah, that that notion of learning to express emotion, learning to, you know, talk about things. I grew up in a household because my mom was was in recovery where it was. What are you feeling all the time to the point where I was like, I don't want to talk about my feelings anymore. But my brothers and sisters, it probably wasn't like that. And I, I know it wasn't like that. Um, and so you react to things in a different way. You bury a lot of stuff uh, and you become an adult and you need to work on it. And it has implications, certainly, in every part of your life. And I can imagine it has, you know, as you mentioned, in your personal and professional life. How are things different now for you? Um. I'm a little mellower because I was always so, you know, I was always, I've always been so driven to do what I do, you know, from the time I was 17 or 18 years old, really 13 years old. I went to my high school reunion 10 years ago and, and everybody was like, you're like the only person that's doing what he wanted to do when he was 13 or 14 years old, you know, because they, I mean, the golf course architecture thing was such an oddball thing that everybody remembered that about me. <laughs> I bet. And, and, you know, and they didn't, they had no clue what it was or why anybody would want to do that or anything else. And it's like, wow, you know, that actually worked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, you know, I was always a, as a student, I was always a perfectionist because you want to, you know, you want to, you want to make mom and dad proud. And, and I, you know, I was a really, really, really good student. And, you know, and of course, that kind of perfectionism has, you know, infected what I do. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's hard not to want to, you know, it's hard to try to let that go when people are paying you a ton of money to build a golf course and they want it to be one of the best golf courses in the world and every little detail matters. And yet, you know, that's really not a healthy way to live where you're just obsessing about every little detail and no matter how good a job you do, it's not good enough. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be manifest itself in, um, I, I know the feeling and the, and the anxiety and the, uh, you know, that can come from, uh, not being perfect or not being able to please everybody. Um, and that, well, I wouldn't say it. Had a lot, I wouldn't say I had a lot of anxiety about that. I would just say that I neglected everything else in my life at the expense of, okay. you know, I was really good at it. So just keep grinding on it and doing better and doing better and doing better and let it take up your whole life. Yeah. And, you know, I've got other things to do in my life besides just what I do for my job. Um, I love my job and, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I can really do something that I love, but you can't just let it consume you completely. Right. And in striving for perfection in your earlier years, allowing it to consume you, uh, but wanting to be perfect. I mean, that comes from, I guess that comes from that place of, okay, um, if I'm perfect, I will get attention from these authority figures or I'll get their approval. Um, you know, right. I'll get them to, that's a, nobody will be mad right. and nothing, nothing, you know, nothing bad will happen because everything's just perfect. Exactly. <laughs> the golden boy. I, I remember I was the golden boy myself, uh, or, or thought I needed to be, I felt I failed all the time at it, but yeah, and it was like, so, if I'm great, so, everything's safe so, and good. Right. Right. So there's, so there's a good one because like when I was God, like maybe about 29 or 30, 
Um, you know, I started in the golf. I started in the golf business right when I was 18. You know, I transferred to Cornell from MIT to pursue landscape architecture because that's what somebody told me was the closest thing I could do. But I started writing letters to everybody in the golf business, like, "How do I do this?" and and I got a ton of help and advice because nobody had ever gotten a letter like that before. And I and I wrote a pretty good letter. So so I wound up one of the first. One of the first breaks was like George Pepper, the editor of Golf Magazine. I wrote him a letter to the editor when I was like 18 or 19 about how they'd just done a ranking of the best courses in the world. And it, clearly the system was screwed up and the results were really skewed by that. And, you know, he sent me a letter back like, well, you know, this is really the publisher's deal. But, but you know, you, you wrote a great three-page letter. Do you want to write something for the magazine? So I started writing something for Golf Magazine when I was 19. Wow. Um, and, you know, George, when I was like 28 and, you know, just getting my feet out the door on my own as a golf course architect, you know, he'd known me from the time I was like an awkward teenager. And, and he always said, you know, it's like, you know, I clearly knew my stuff. You know, I knew more about golf course architecture than anybody he'd ever met already, but, you know, did I have the personality and would I be able to relate to the clients and everything? He could see that part of me and how awkward I was around people sometimes. But so he did He did a column uh, and it was really about the confidential guide. I'd given him one of the first copies of my book, the one that was only for 40 friends. And he wrote about it in his column in the front of the magazine. And you reminded me of it because the title of his column was Boy Wonder. And, you know, I was I was getting used to that. But he also, you know, tried to describe me as being awkward. And I think he used the word like idiot savant or something like that, you know, because and and I have dealt with that ever since. You know, I mean, I didn't really know, you know, I always knew I was different around people than most people. And I never really understood why. And so not knowing anything about it, you know, when somebody says that about you, you're like, well, maybe I am. It's like. And if I am, it's like, what would I do about it? You know, I'm still like, it's not like it's handicapping me in a major way that I can see. I'm doing pretty, I'm, I'm pretty successful right now, you know, to be 28 and starting to design golf courses on my own already. And, um, you know, I don't, maybe there's nothing, maybe that's it. And maybe there's nothing I can do about that. So I didn't like let it, you know, I didn't really know how to find out if that was true or not, but I didn't let it bother me either. Um, but, and there are some positive things to it. I mean, like one of the things I've heard in therapy that I kind of internalized a long time ago, but never really thought about in the right way was like, you know, once you get a reputation as being difficult and people are kind of afraid to deal with you, it, you know, it's, it. I saw an interview with Deborah Winger, the act actress once, and she had a reputation for being difficult. She was asked if it bothered her. And it was like, no, it, it, it's kept the weak people away. <laughs> <laughs> and I just busted out laughing when I heard it because it was kind of true. It's like, you know, there's some people that are going to be uncomfortable dealing with you and dealing with emotions. And it's probably because they've got their own baggage mm -hmm. and, you know, you're going to mix like oil and water and you're better off not being their client. Um, so, so I didn't, you know, 
that reputation has always kind of guarded me. And it's always also it's always been like, you know, that combined with some of my reviews and the confidential guide that were so out of the norm for the golf business. You know, I got this reputation for being an asshole and it wasn't based on personal interactions. It was based on me having written something about some place. And, you know, at least with that, I didn't have to, you know, worry that much about whatever people thought. It's like, if I, you know, if you th already think I'm an asshole, then why would I worry about what you think? And that part is, that is actually healthy of, the, you know, the thing you, that you learn in group therapy is, it's none of my business what other people think of me. That is a really healthy right. attitude. And, you know, I got to it the wrong way, but I did get to it. And so I've, you know, I just kept doing my thing as a designer, even if, you know, and if it not everybody loved it, that was okay. Because it is, at the end of the day, whether golf course is good is all a matter of opinion anyway. Now how, and I should note that another upside of it is that that's how we're actually speaking today because that's how we first came in touch is you reached out to me uh, that I had written something in a course called America because uh, I, I do want to just give the context uh, for people listening uh, about yep. the the loop at Forest Dunes and in trying to, in, in praising the golf course, um, I acknowledged my uh, misgivings about this person, Tom Doak, who I'd never met and uh, who had this reputation that you're referring to um, but that I'd you know seen in print that I'd, I'd heard from some people who'd, who'd, who'd worked for you. That's not important. But what I actually in the passage, I note that reputation, but say that, hey, you know what? Sometimes that's just the price of being a genius because the loop is brilliant as is uh as is stonewall as is you know any so many of your golf courses are absolutely brilliant pacific and you know there's a long list and there's a genius in them that i thought hey you know sometimes geniuses aren't always easy to get along with that was the kind of point that i was making in doing that though i understood why you reached out to me and said hey right. we've never met <laughs> you don't know me and that's maybe that's and and I realized, you know, that's not quite fair. And I would rather have taken made the effort in doing the book to come find you, to come meet you. In any event, I'm glad that we've met now and, and we both sort of expressed our 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 ideas on on uh on that inner interchange and I think it was productive. Are you different now in how you deal with, you know, from writing that, you know, your first confidential guide, you know, are you different as a writer, reviewer, different with clients? Um, in what ways are you, or would you say, you know, you mentioned before that you're maybe a little gentler, but you haven't totally lost your edge. No. And so, um, well, you know, after, after all the controversy for the confidential guide 20 years ago, I put it away. And, I, you know, I used to joke with friends, maybe I'll write a posthumous update to it. <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to really deal with all the fallout from that again. I'll just leave that to my son and he can make some money off it. And but then like, you know, five or six years ago, I started I started working on it again because I thought, OK, I, I should be at the point in my career now where if I write something about someone else's work, people aren't going to take it as, oh, he's trying to stab them in the back so he can beat them out for a job somewhere. 
Cause like, you know, I have no shortage of design opportunities on my own. I don't really need to do that to people. And I'm really not that way, but it's still like saying anything negative about anybody's work. There is no criticism of golf course architecture in the, in the media per se at all, because they're all afraid to offend a potential advertiser. So you just don't go there. You know, that's why I wrote the book in the first place 30 years ago. I was like, even in golf magazine, every golf course was good, better, or best. There was <laughs> never anything that helped you try to decide, should I go here or should I go there? Because they were all great. And the, the point of that book was, the original point of the book was just, tell all my friends, you know, that golf course is okay, but if you're going to be going to Scotland for three days, these ones here are all better than that. You know, don't spend your time there, spend your time somewhere else. And I didn't really even try, you know, all I tried to do in the book, honestly, was give people a sense of, is that a golf course that they wanted to go see or not? Because their opinion of it might be different than me, you know? And I would say things like, you know, if you're a scratch golfer, you might like this, but if you're not a scratch golfer, this golf course is going to beat the crap out of you and you will not have much fun. Um, so, you know, when I, when I came back to the book again, it was a really hard, it was a really hard decision because, you know, on the one hand, you know, I mean, I now have, you know, had people review my golf courses and had people review them negatively and very negatively because, you know, I'm famous for being a tough reviewer. So naturally, everybody was going to give me a taste of my own medicine. And on the one hand, I totally understood that. And on the other hand, I found out, you know, that kind of hurts. It stings a little bit when somebody says something about your work that is very unflattering. You know, you got to take it. You got to take the good with the bad. So, I, you know, I'm not like really hurt or bothered or anything. But, but I understand that saying anything about saying anything bad is controversial for that reason. But at the same time, you know, that book is really loved by a lot of people because it's the still to this day, the only book you can find that has really honest reviews of golf courses and what I thought of them. And I did not pull any punches and I couldn't update it and change that. I mean, that would be, you know, the book has a life and a personality of its own kind of. And I had to respect that. And that meant I still had to say, no, I don't like this golf course very much. I think I, I don't think this part of it was done badly, or I think, you know, the whole the whole idea of it is just misplaced. And, you know, that was gonna stir up controversy again, and it did. And, you know, I'm not sorry I did it. I still think that there needs to be somebody saying those kinds of things if you know if golf course architecture is going to advance and people are going to try to keep doing better and you know i'm one of the few people that's going to do that and i'm still going to do that and maybe some people think i'm an asshole because of it and it's like <laughs> okay you know <laughs> how does that affect you what you think of me is it, what exactly? What do you think of me? None of my business. 
your relationship with your peers though do you think about it do you how is your relationship with with your peers um is it obviously affected because you do review their work but i mean and if people don't know you know yeah on, on the mount rushmore of designers right now i would put yourself gill core crenshaw you know the and and i love dave mcclay kids work we could talk about the we won't bring up uh maybe the castle course or maybe we should in any event yeah well maybe we should i mean yeah and let's yeah okay that's an elephant in the room when you talk about the confidential guide because that's one that everyone points to yeah that's the one that every everyone points to and and when the shit hit the fan about that i uh i asked my wife was this unfair and she said did he say you were wrong and i said no he said I was childish. <laughs> he said he said a lot of other things. He didn't say I was wrong about the golf course. And if you ask David now, 10 years later, you know, his whole philosophy of design has completely changed from the castle course. He thinks it was too it hard. It has changed. Um, it has changed. You know, I think David, you know, I'm not going to psychoanalyze anybody else because one of the things I wanted to say on this is one of the most uncomfortable things for me is the fact that golf writers, podcasters, all these guys reviewing my work, you know, they they try to get inside my head and say why Tom did this on this hole. And they have no idea. They're just making mm -hmm. shit up. And they don't call me and ask me. They just, you know, I'm this character to them. Or I'm like Alistair McKenzie who's long dead. So you can't really, you can't really interview him about why he did that. You just you just have this idea of what drove him. And so I'm not going to psychoanalyze anybody else. But, you know, David Kidd is even younger than me. So I think he probably had some of the same things I, in his relationship with Mike Kaiser and some of his early clients that I did. So, you know, and, and David and I, at the end of the day, David and I were a little different because I'm, I think, eight or 10 years older than David. And, um, you know, there's naturally going to be a rivalry there because he built Banded Dunes for Mike and it was instantly successful and he was the hot new guy. And and he certainly thought that he should get to do that second course, too. Like I would have if I designed the first one. But, you know, I'd already known Mike for a long time. And, you know, Mike had said to me. You know, if there's a second golf course, I'll give you the first crack at that. Um, and then I built a course and it kind of took some, of, you know, it stole some of the limelight back away from David because people like mine just as much, if not better. And so that set us up to be rivals. But I have always taken the approach in my business that like, you know, what I'm trying to do as a golf course architect is build golf courses that are like that I think are as cool as all the McKenzie courses and Donald Ross courses and George Thomas courses that inspired me to get in this business in the first place. And if I can do that, then I'm successful. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm struggling. But you know, what David Kidd is building or Gil Hance or Bill Core, that doesn't affect my standard for myself. You know, yeah, maybe on some level we compete with each other for clients, but I don't, I hate that part of the job, honestly. I just, I would just assume, you know, if a client can't decide which of us he wants, 
I'd just as soon take myself out of the running and just work for the people that really want me. Um, but, you know, I don't think of myself, you know, I never think about I'm trying to do a better course than David or, or at Streamsong. You know, I've been building a band for 40 years and, you know, we're not like good friends that chat every day, but you know, Ben Crenshaw did so much for me when I was 20 years old. He treated me like my, like my older cousins treat me. Just one of the family, always had time for me. He always had time for everybody. Um, but, you know, that's been a really special relationship to me. And, you know, and my relationship with Bill has been kind of the same. I've known them both for ages and ages. And we don't really think... You know, we look at each other's work and kind of laugh and scratch our heads like, boy, I never would have thought of that one. Or, you know, Stream Song was, a, was it was in a lot of ways the coolest experience I've ever had because Bill and I worked on the, the plan for 36 Holes together. And both of us thought a lot about, well, if I built this hole, what would I do? And then we divided it up and... You know, we built them at the same time and we would go see what the other guy was doing over there. And I was like, you know, that 16th hole on the red course is Biarritz Hall. It's like, God, I never would have come up with that in 100 years. I mean, I always looked at it just like there's just barely it's just barely big enough to have a green where the front plateau of that thing is. And I never even thought of all that space behind it. And you could turn it into a giant wild green, mm. uh, even though funnily enough, you know, people people probably look at that green and and think that's more likely to be mine than his because it's got a giant wild green. Um, but, um, you know, that's my relation, my relationship with Bill and Ben. It's like, we both, I think admire each other's work and, you know, and are pleased that there's somebody else out there doing great work and don't really feel competitive about it at all. And yet, you know, Mike Kaiser looked at that as like a competition between me and Bill and Ben. And if he'd have been on site with us, I don't think he'd have thought that way at all. Hmm. Fun fact about that, Bill, doing it together. Is it true that one of you had uh, or they were, had a red pen and you had a blue pen as you were marking up? That's why the courses are Stream Song Red and Stream Song Blue. I had heard someone tell me that uh, as you decided which holes were going to be. That is true. It's a, it's a, little, bit, it's, it's, it's a little bit funnier story than that, actually, you know we did do use different pens and you know, I volunteered because the golf course is kind of wrapped through each other. And because I know Bill likes to draw plans even less than I do. I volunteered pretty early on, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to draw the two plans separately. Do you want us to just draw the plan for yours too while we're at it? You know, I'll have Don Plasic who works for me come down and spend a few days with you and, you know, make sure he's got everything the way you want it. And we'll put it on the, we'll do the grading plan. Bill was like, sure. So, um, so Bill had his red, you know, Bill did his in red and I did mine in blue to mm -hmm. keep them separate. And that's the way Don drew it up. So, so anyway, that, so Bill and I went to a meeting one day when we were down there about, uh, naming the two golf courses and, the client, Rich Mack, was there and they, they'd hired a marketing firm from New York to try to come up with names for the two golf courses. <laughs> and, you know, and the names were just, you know, Bill and I are just sinking lower in our seats. It's like Bone Crusher Hills and, 
I mean, it was, they were crazy names. And the reason they were crazy names, they explained to us, it's like they wanted, this is like 2010-ish. They wanted two, they wanted two different names that were like the domain name.com wasn't already taken. So anything simple was taken. And all they could come up with were these weird compound words that were pretty cringeworthy. Right. And, and, you know, they get to the end of their presentation and, and Bill and I just don't know what to think. Cause of, you know, the people coming up with the names had never seen the golf courses at all. You know, they hadn't seen what we were building. They just made up a bunch of names <laughs> And, you know, Bill and I just didn't know what to say. And, you know, because because I'm the one who has this reputation, I just I just looked at the client like, but Rich, I don't understand what you're trying to do. I mean, aren't you trying to, like, establish the name of Streamsong? You know, Streamsong doesn't exist yet. Why name the golf course something completely different that, you know, people won't even relate to Streamsong? Because, you know, Band and Dunes was different. They opened one golf course at a time. So the first one was Band and Dunes. And once, once Band and Dunes was established at a place, you could start using different names. Mm -hmm. But Streamsong didn't have that going for it. So I just said, you know, why don't we, you know, why don't we call it North and South or East and West or Red and Blue? And at the end of the day, that's what it took. Red and Blue it is. Very cool. How about... And uh, Black now. And Black now, of course. And Black brings us to Gil Hands. Now, people might not realize, I was at the creek yesterday, which I think might have been one of jo Gil's first jobs working with you, if I'm not incorrect. And I live in. Yeah, well, that's what, yeah, that's what we did the renovation of the creek while we were working on Stonewall together. That's right. And now Gil's my neighbor because uh, he came to Philadelphia during the stone for the Stonewall job and, and, he, and basically stayed. And you're so he he would you know Gil came up under under you and and now is obviously um, uh, a very busy architect as well. Um, I wonder what's your relationship with with, with Gil? Um, it's a little awkward, and so you know, like I I don't I haven't talked to Gil for a while. I mean, when I see him, it's very pleasant, mm -hmm. but I'm not you know I'm not really is is I'm, I'm not friends with him the way I am with Bill and Ben, okay. and some of that's rivalry i guess even though i don't really like to think of it that way but um you know when he got at when when he when he decided he was going to go out on his own like right after stonewall i said to him look i understand that like the first two or three years you get out on your own you're going to have to talk about all the work that you did with me like you were really the guy responsible for a lot of it because mm -hmm. that's the only thing you've got to show people what you do I understand that that's the way the business goes. You know, once you've got a couple of new courses of your own to talk about, you know, don't go back and tell everybody you were the main, you were all the brains behind this one, you know, because, and the funny thing is, you know, the golf business is, is a business where people don't normally share credit. So when I did share credit with Gil for Stonewall, which I volunteered to do, 30 years ago, um, a lot of people in the golf business assumed, well, it he must have done it all because otherwise, why would Tom share any of the credit with him? <laughs> you know, and and that bothered me a little bit. I mean, you know, I lived at Stonewall with for six months with my wife and one year old, just like Gil did. And so, you know, for people to say, oh, it's all his, that kind of 
that kind of made our relationship rocky for a while. But, you know, I'm really happy to see him be so successful. And, and it seems like we, we kind of appeal to different clients because our personalities are different. So we don't actually clash for jobs all that much. Um, you know, the one where we did famously was the Olympic course in Rio, you know, while everybody else thought they were going to hire Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman or somebody else. I understood that, like, you know, the Olympics don't care about brand names. They are the brand. They don't want the other brand name. They want a good facility. So, you know, I, I figured the whole way that he and I were the two competitors for that job. And we actually did discuss doing it together. Hmm. Uh, not many people know that. Um, and at the and and Gil actually agreed that he would do that, and I, and I decided not to. And I, the main reason I decided not to was that I had all, I have all these other guys working for me who have been working for me for ten years and doing a great job. And if to get that job, I had to like undercut all of them to get Gil to help get the job. I just thought that wasn't fair to them. So, you know, so we competed for the job and he won out and it's been, you know, it's made his career explode and good for him. And you have your stable right now of uh, architects that are working um, at Renaissance. Uh, we just had Brian Schneider on recently to talk about some of his work. So is there a pride factor involved when you see these, you know, these guys going out there and, and doing their thing. Um, there are others as well that are working with you now. Yeah. There, there's a lot of others. Yeah. Um, I was going to, yeah, it is escaping me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of all of them. And, and I'm proud that, that, you know, for many of them working for me, whether they work for me for six months as an intern or three or four years or 15 or 20, like some of them now, um, for a lot of them, I was like their first job in the golf business. Like Gil was still in grad school at Cornell when he worked for me at High Point on my first golf course. Mike DeVries, first job in golf course design was working with me and Gil at Black Forest in Michigan. Um, boy, you know, Kyle France, who's doing so great now and, and getting, you know, doing renovation projects all over the East Coast and now is going to do one of the courses at Worldwoods. Kyle was a kid in community college in Oregon when we were doing Pacific Dunes. And he came down and lived with me and Jim Urbina for three months in the, when we built the last few holes there and worked for me for, he worked on Barnboogle for us. He, he worked on Stone Eagle with Eric Iverson, who's still working for me as, as one of my associates. And, uh, you know, just a ton of really talent, you know, that's, I mean, a huge reason why I've been able to build so many really good golf courses. I've had a ton of talented people work for me, just one after another. And, you know, and the sad part is some of them, the name, you know, the names of all the people I just named, you know, pretty well. Mm -hmm. And then for every one of them, there, there's at least one more who is also really super talented and just didn't hit the business at the right time or wasn't able to, you know, go out on their own and succeed, you know, especially the, I mean, the recession in 2008, cutting the business down from 200 courses a year to five made a lot, you know, a lot of 30 year old guys that j hadn't made a name for themselves yet, just couldn't 
try to survive until they were 40 mm -hmm. to try to make themselves a name now. So we lost a lot of real talent during that, that period, but they're still all over. And, you know, it just amazes me now, the kids that call me and want to work for me, you know, they'll, they've, they've gone and spent three months in the UK on their own. Like, you know, like I did on my scholarship for Cornell and they've gone around and seen all these other golf courses. They're all like really well prepared to do it. And I like to think I had a little to do with that because, because golf course architects, 40 years ago, didn't do that. And I kind of got to be famous for having gone and seen all these places. And there's a lot of other people trying to do that now. And yeah, that's really cool. It's very cool. You mentioned High Point. Uh, I've heard something. What's going on with High Point? Did somebody buy it and something's happening. Uh, you know, it's so High Point was my first golf course in Traverse right. City. Uh, that's why I, I, I'm talking to you from Traverse City. I'm really from the East Coast. I was born in New York City and grew up in Connecticut. But I came out here. The, the pro at Crystal Downs recommended me to someone as a potential designer for a new course in Traverse City when I was 25 years old. And I got the job and spent two years building it, mostly myself. It's like, you know, it was the first course I did on my own. And I got on the bulldozer and shaped all the greens myself. So it was a very special project to me. And, and I still live here because of it, but you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of golf course architects over the years, the older guys, and they're like, you know, the, for most of us, the first project we did is just like, it's hard to watch what happens to it in the long term Cause you really think about it. It's like, you know, who's the kind of, you know, the kind of person that will give a young person a chance to design something on their own you know, that's a very cool opportunity and I'm not taking anything away from that. But at the same time, boy, they, do they really know how to run a golf course business? <laughs> you know, no, they, they, <laughs> they probably don't know that much about the whole business at all. And they, you just watch them suffer, you know? And, and so, you know, that reputation I had of being difficult to work with, you know, when, when I got done with the golf course and it was time to let go and, let them own it and run it. You know, I tried to keep and in, stay involved and make some suggestions and they didn't want me to. And so, you know, headbutt and friction and I had to step away for a while. And, you know, now I look back and in the, that, that golf, the golf course was open for 20 years and they had like, they had like seven different superintendents and six different golf pros. So maybe the problem wasn't all about me. You know, they just had trouble dealing with people and, finding people, you know, working with people. Um, so the golf course, so the client, Don Hayden Sr., passed away in 2006. And then his son inherited the golf course, and the son was never really into the golf thing much at all. You know, a, a decent chunk of his inheritance was the golf course. And then the recession came and just slapped him upside the head, and the thing wasn't making any money at all. And he closed it. And he thought he would sell it to somebody else. But, you know, you know, I talked to Mike Kaiser and Herb Kohler and a couple other people about, you know, would you help me buy this golf course and save it? And they they said they would help, but they said, don't overpay. I mean, you know, it's a struggling golf course in a deep recession. You know, if you if you're paying three million dollars for it, that's stupid. You know, and Don, because he just inherited the thing for 
three, you know, a value of $3 million. He didn't want to sell it for less than that. So no buyer ever materialized. And he just kept the golf course closed and he eventually sold off the, sold off the land. And there was a hops farm growing on it. I mean, I made the joke at one point that, you know, my, my oldest had turned to alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Your first uh, Because it turned into a hops farm. Yes, my firstborn. Um, and so, you know, so it's been sitting there for the last 12 years. And some of it's like torn up and gone. But actually, most of the back nine, they, they still hadn't turned into a farm yet. The land is still there. It almost honestly looks like the land that I started with. You know, you can barely you can kind of tell where the fairways used to be. But the and the contours are all there, but I didn't really change the contours very much in the first place. That place was the birth of minimalism for me because I had to be able to build it all myself with a D four bulldozer. Couldn't do very much. Um, so you know, I've always kind of held out hope that maybe someday somebody'd want to put it back together. And this winter, I got a call from somebody in Florida who said he'd been he'd been trying to buy the Kingsley Club, Mike DeVries's course, when it for, was for sale. He didn't realize well, like five other bidders. So he wound up not winning out on that. But he spent a lot of time in this area and he really loved it. And he still wanted to, he thought there was a market for another golf course. And several people had told him, you should talk to Tom about High Point. So we're putting up, we've put a plan together to build a new version of High Point using several of the holes from the back nine of the old golf course, along with more land that they'd bought to the east that I actually routed a nine hole golf course on in 1988 when the, when the ownership thought they might do a third nine and then they never acted on it, but they, you know, they have the land for 18 holes without, you know, we're just buying the land behind what they're growing hops on. Okay. If this whole thing goes, but it has to be rezoned. So we got a zoning meeting next month to go to, to find out whether it's a possibility. If, if they approve the zoning, then I think I'm going to be building the new version of High Point next year, which would be just a thrill. Everybody that works for me is super, super excited by that because they all love that golf course if they played it. And, uh, and you know, to me at this point in my life, you know, we're really, really busy with other stuff right now. But anytime I can work on something that's close to home and I don't have to get onto a plane to go see it and I could just go out for the afternoon and work on it that'll be a lot of fun. Just like the loop was. That's phenomenal. That is very exciting. We're all excited if that, if that happens and we hope that it does. I hope I didn't just jinx it. I haven't said anything about it because I, you know, I still know there's no, a no, chance no. That the whole thing will just flop over and not happen, but let's keep our fingers crossed. We're, we've all got our, <laughs> we're touching wood and we're, and we're finger crossing and, and all that. But Tom, it's been awesome to have the chance to sort of be, sort of reflective with you today and, and, uh, talking about, um, who you really are. I mean, how many people out there do you think really know Tom Doak? Boy, not very many. You know, I remember there, there was somebody doing one of those big magazine profiles about me five years ago, and they talked to Gil a little bit. And the one thing that Gil said to the, to the writer that really struck him was he's really misunderstood. And yet that quote didn't make the article, <laughs> you know, that that's not where the writer wanted to go with it. Um, so, 
you know, I'm okay with being misunderstood. At the end of the day, it's, you know, what I love to do is build golf courses. And it's really about the golf courses. It's not about me. And, and that's, I mean, this business has become so focused on the designers and their personality and their backstory. And I kind of think that's misplaced, but, you know, not many people know how to write about the actual golf course. And they think people are more interested in the, the story of the people. So, you know, so I've been psychoanalyzed to death and misunderstood and whatever. and you know, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to correct it, but I appreciate getting to talk about it a little today. Like, you know, one of the good things about doing the podcasts I've been doing with Andy Johnson is I, I get a lot of people call me and say, well, I never listened to you. You don't, you don't come off nearly like an asshole, like, like your reputation. <laughs> and, and that's nice because yes, you come off, to, you can come off very differently in print or by text or by anything else. And, you know, it's yeah. nice to be out in front of people in a more informal way. And I think that you touched on something that's interesting, that this trend in both of our lifetimes. You know, I grew up on a William Flynn golf course. I grew up at Rolling Green. And um, when I worked there as a kid, I tell people, you know, if someone said, you know, William Flynn, I would have gone looking for his golf bag. I had no idea who William Flynn was because <laughs> yep. in 1982, nobody gave a damn. You know, you didn't put the architect's name on the scorecard, <laughs> you right. know, it was just, we live in Philadelphia. Yeah. Donald Ross, whatever, you know, they design golf courses. Fantastic. And then, you know, whether it be through golf club Atlas or the internet or, or some of your books, you know, people become aware of designers and, and there becomes this designer celebrity sort of thing, putting names on golf courses. That means it's good. Um, and so that it's hard to separate, uh, to, you know, architect and golf course, which is, it wasn't always that way. Um, and now it's, uh, so I, I, it's interesting to, you know, the downside of that for, for you personally, or for even just people who love golf and just want to be able to look at a golf course objectively and say, I love this golf course designed by so-and-so, even though everyone who thinks they know everything about GCA is says so-and-so is an idiot, you know, um, there's been, uh, and sometimes it's, it's a funny, like to be cool, you've got to like these architects and not these architects right. or whatever. Um, and, and it's a very good point that you bring up about writers talking about, and cause I've done this, um, when, and I did it when I was writing about the loop, it's easier. It's not necessarily, it, it's, it is easier to talk about Tom Doak than to talk about the specific elements of what make a golf hole interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also more entertaining. It, and yeah. it is, and 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 it's also people want to read about people. They don't want to always. They don't want to read three pages about um, bunker placement. Um, but they do want to know, like, hey, the person who made this is he interesting? And does and is and is because he's interesting and intelligent and gifted. I can see it in the dirt, and um, and so that's I, from from a writer's point of view. That's I think why architects were a big part of the the america book for me um because i write about people you know that are that are part of Most golf but and, um and, some, and it so, makes but, it makes yeah. golf course architecture more accessible i mean you know one of the reasons it, it drives me a little crazy i've consulted on a lot of seth rayner courses and mcdonald courses you know i'm doing the restoration of alito right now and just played it for the first time the other day yeah. um but um 
you know, those templates that they did are like, they've taken on this outsized importance now because there's shortcuts to talking about golf course architecture. You don't have to describe the hole and why the hole is interesting. You just say it's a redan, like the famous hole at North Berwick, and everybody's supposed to bow down to that. So then now it's like, if you're a young architect, the simplest way to get golf writers to talk about your work is build that because they understand that and they can write about that really easily. And you're connected to the past. And it's just like, is this really good for architecture that everybody's just doing these kind of cartoonish versions of the same damn hole? Right. I agree. Template, you know, became that is become such a buzzword. Uh, and, and to the point it's ad nauseum really. Um, because it's an easy way to talk about what's pretty con what's it's an easy way to talk about what's an art, to be honest. And art is hard to talk yeah. about. <laughs> it's hard to describe things um, that are, uh, but we can under un templates or something that's, that's easy to understand. Yeah. It kind of drives me crazy. Cause if you really like look at it from a, a macro enough level, every golf hole is a template T fairway green. <laughs> every golf you know if you really look far enough back that it's it's all a freaking template let's let's get over it but one thing in your note i do want to touch on the emotional component of golf course design the psychology of design yeah um and as it relates to you changing and growing emotionally as a person uh i'm really interested in you know this i mean i think some of the stuff we've talked about today tom frankly is like sort of a, a, a passage of some a lot of growth that's happened in your life as a person. Yeah. How has that spilled over influenced your, your, your architecture? Well, I mean, I think part of that I always understood and part of what drew me to golf, honestly, was that, you know, growing up in a sort of halfway repressed parent with parent, repressed parents, you know, the golf course was like a refuge. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, because mm -hmm. I, you know, tons of people are affected by the same stuff you and I have been talking about, whether they know it or not. But, you know, the golf, golf seems like a magnet for them. You know, golf is a magnet for people with perfectionist tendencies because it's so freaking hard and it just appeals to people. Yep. You know, it's the biggest challenge they could possibly do. That's why people like Michael Jordan love golf so much. And so... So, you know, I, I deal with type A personality type people all the time. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so a lot of, you know, before this current generation of golf course architects, most, a lot of the famous architects, except for Pete Dye, were tour players. Any, or, or if, and if not tour players, really, really, really good golfers. You know, Pete Dye was a great golfer. Uh, you know, Indiana amateur champion and played in the U.S. Open three times and and all the rest. Most guys, most architects work because that's how they got, you know, oh, he he's a great player. He knows a lot about golf. He should understand design. Let's ask him. Um, you know, and I'm really not, you know, I loved golf for being outdoors. And I love golf because you can be very competitive at it but you can also play it and totally not be competitive at it and just enjoy being out there. And it's, you know, and I've, and, you know, and at first I thought, you know, like working with Jack Nicholas at Sabonic, it's like, he doesn't relate to that part. You know, he's, he's all his whole life. 
he's been a competitive player and he's been trying to get better since he was like 12 years old. And so, you know, he thinks that golf course architecture is all about the shots and the penalty or the reward for hitting the shot. And he just doesn't get that, you know, a lot of people aren't out there for that. That's not their main thing. Um, but especially now I look back on it and think, you know, a golf course, golf course for a lot of people is like one of the few safe places to be out there and express your emotions. You know, you can get really upset if you hit a bad shot and nobody's going to like recoil in horror and think you're a bad person. You can get really excited when you hit a good shot and nobody's going to think you have too big an ego and, and, you know, you can enjoy yourself and you can get frustrated and you can just express emotion. My wife, when we went to Bandon Dunes for the first time, her comment on it was, I've never seen so many happy men in one place. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, you know, because they'd be like on their phone calling their wives in the evening, like, oh, it's been so great. You know, really having a good time. Miss you. But, you know, they were just relaxed and not uptight and and enjoying each other's company. And she's like, I didn't grow up with that. You know, men were usually combative. <laughs> so, you know, so that emotional thing, you know, Pete Dye used the psychology of it to, like, make the golf course harder. You know, when I worked on the planning for PGA West, you know, after he told, you know, we were trying to think of ways to get under players' skins. Like, what do they not like? Huh. They don't like to have an approach where they don't see the bottom of the flag. So let's do that to them. You know, if they hit it as far as they can, they don't see the bottom of the flag. If they lay back a little bit, they can see it. They have to decide. Um, but, you know, but... You know, I've taken it to a level of like, you know, trying to make people excited and, you know, using the uh, using the routing of the golf course to like reveal the landscape. You know, one of my one of my favorite comments ever about one of my golf courses, um, you know, I knew when when we did the routing for Pacific Dunes and we finally figured out how the sequence would go. You get up to the, you play the first two or three holes and you kind of see the ocean in the distance. And when you walk up on the third green, you're at the ocean all of a sudden. And it is really powerful moment. And you're, you're kind of like, you get, you can be very emotional about it. And then after you put out, you go, you, you go, you go past the snack bar and you, then you go around the corner for the snack bar and there's the fourth hole just all along the coast, right in front of you, like you get to see how big this property really is and how dramatic it is. And they, they had the, um, they had the women's, it was, I think it was the, I don't think it was the women's mid-am. I think it, it was like the, the public links, which was a lot of college players back then. And one of the girls playing in it said when she made that turn around to the, and saw the fourth hole, as she came around the corner, she cried. Hmm. And I was like, that's really cool. That's, you know, I almost, you know, I have a very hard time crying, honestly. But I almost cried when I saw that for the first time. It was like, really? We're going to get to build a golf course there and do that? Yeah. Was just like dream come true for me. And, you know, you just want other people to get to share those feelings. 
and, you know, and feel like they're discovering the property for themselves. And if you could do that, you know, the thrill of being up on a high tee and being able to hit it farther and, and, and the agony of when you don't realize that the, the higher up you are, the more time it has to hook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, they kind of go together, but, but really I'm building for, you know, people that that's why those are the reasons that they're out there. And I think that's why our courses have resonated with people is because it's not all about just challenging you to try to break par. It's also an experience and a really up and down fun one. You're creating emotional experiences for people. And I think that that's pretty, to bring it sort of full circle to what we talked about earlier in the conversation, that's pretty awesome. Um, Saying, you know, growing up around not a lot of emotion or a lot of feelings, golf has given you a chance to, you know, I don't want to play armchair psychiatrist or anything like that, but it just seems to me that golf is a way that you are really connecting with people, that you are giving them something to feel very deeply. And maybe that's because, you know, I don't know. Am I on the right track there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know everything that drives me. I, I know, you know, I know I've always been comfortable outdoors on a golf course. And, you know, so the first thing is I'm given that to a lot of people is the you know, the chance, you know, the space to do that. And, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not necessarily trying to, you know, make you go through these five steps right here yeah. <laughs> from the first tee to the 18th green. It's like, no, it's for you. I mean, it's, it kind of drives me crazy sometimes, you know, Bill Cor and I laugh a lot that, that people think we have it all figured out the day we start. And we both work for Pete Dye and Pete Dye said to me really early on, it's like, if I had it all figured out, I wouldn't be out here in the dirt every day at seven o'clock in the morning. I'm still working on it, trying to make it better. Um, but, you know, so we don't like, you know, have every little twist and turn planned out for people. And, and I personally don't want, you know, I don't control where you hit your ball. So, so, you know, you're going to experience it differently than I would maybe really like you to, but that's okay. You know, that's what, you know, some designers think like, you know, if you played the whole, you know, I mean, 99% of the criticism we get is, for, you know, somebody played the hole badly and they just, sure. you know, if you hit your dive in the trees, right. And make seven, the hole is bad. And you didn't even see the hole. I mean, you don't remember the first thing about it, <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's the typical reaction and not just from the average golfer, you know, like tour players are just as bad about that. You know, if they can't, if, if there's something that they couldn't do and they couldn't hit a, sh- a certain shot, they think that's entirely wrong because they're the they're the best players in the world. And if they can't do it, who can? So this, you, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, all golfers are going to be like that. That kind of stuff just rolls off my back. Mm-hmm. But you do want people to have a chance to go out and kind of plot their own way around and enjoy it however they enjoy it. Now, how, what do you enjoy, Tom? So if you're someone who knew what they wanted to do at 12, 13 years old, goes out and does it. Your life has been, you know, you're yeah. very driven. 
you travel the world, you know, you're writing about golf, you're designing golf courses, you're playing, you play golf. What do you do for fun that might not, is anything not have golf in it? Oh yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I used to love to travel and just see the world. And of course, you know, most of that's been consumed by my work travel. So it's hard to travel as a hobby now, but I do, I do love seeing the world. And I've, you know, I've been lucky to get most of the way around the world on the back of golf. Um, I love baseball. That was one of the things my dad and I bonded over. You know, I've always, from the time I was three years old, I've been a huge baseball fan. And who's your team? Um, you know, and the Yankees. Um, I grew up, okay. so my parents were from, from Missouri and my dad was a huge Cardinal fan. And then they moved to New York in 1950 and they used to go to Cardinals Dodgers games in Brooklyn back in the day. And then Brooklyn and the, and the Giants left. And so the first game that I saw was actually like a game of the, game four of the 1964 World Series. My dad took me to the World Series when I was three and a half years old because it was Cardinals Yankees. But Nice. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't become a Cardinals fan. You couldn't get them on TV. You could only w- go watch the Yankees. So, you know, when I was a kid, I went and watched the Yankees and they stunk and Mickey Mantle got old and, you know, <laughs> and then they were not very good for a while after that. And then all of a sudden, you know, and then all my other friends got, got interested in baseball and, and the Red Sox won and the Mets won. So they were all their fans. And then all of a sudden, when I was in high school, the Yankees had the best team in baseball and I got to go to a ton of those games, you know, with my friends, you know, and, and, and see, you know, more than anything, well, not more than anything, but a huge factor in me having so much confidence when I was a 16 or 17 year old was, was that like, you know, they're the best team in the world and they're going to win because they're the best team in the world and they won. And it was like, if you're good enough and if you work hard enough, you can win. I think that's one of the things that draws a lot of people to sports is it's just like, you know, it's not just about that. It's just, you know, that's a path for you too. If, if you're good enough at it and, um, you know, and then, and then, you know, like immediately after college, I started traveling living out of a, my car and, traveling around Europe and the Yankees stunk again for 10 or 15 years. And then finally, when I got, you know, back into baseball a little bit, when I had time to, and when my son was old enough to, for me to take him to a game, the Yankees were great again. And they kind of haven't been too bad ever since. And I'm a numbers geek. So I was born in 1961, Roger Maris's 61 home runs. And I'm 61 years old now. And there's Aaron Judge doing his thing. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. You know, I always I always thought that would, you know, that year would be a cool year, but I didn't I didn't really think that like something like that might happen in baseball. 61, 61. Get a couple dollars on the Yankees, everybody, for this to 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 do it this year. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating though, that you took personal confidence, you know, from being a fan of a dominant team. I love that. Um and it might explain some things about. I grew up a Phillies fan, so maybe that has explained some of the things that, <laughs> that I've had to overcome and deal with in my life, Tom. I was a Jets fan too. I didn't. I was a Jets fan too. And I, you know, it kind of destroyed me for football, actually, because you know, I grew up. My dad's business was like buying commodities for Unilever, 
And he did business with Leon Hess. So we had season tickets to the Jets when I was a really little kid too. Oh, sorry. I saw Joe Namath when he was young and a great player. And then sadly, you know, the point of football at some point was like, just injure him and get him the hell out of the game. And then this team is no good. And that turned me off football. It was just a brutal sport where you're just trying to injure the other guy's quarterback. Mm. It's, it's not quite like that anymore. Thank God. Right. Indeed. Um, well, Jets, Yankees, it's a fair balance. It's a fair trade-off. Tom, cannot, yes. there, there's so <laughs> many things we could get into, but you've given us a lot of time and, I, and, and a lot of thoughtful stuff to, to consider. We really appreciate your time uh, and your conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me talk.